Mindfulness Mode 404. The day our hearts basically stop and we are legally dead, what to do at that point? Hey, Mindful Tribe, my guest today is a bit of a different kind of a guest from what I usually have because he's not into mindfulness as much as other people, although he does look at death mindfully, in my opinion. He's written a book about death called At Death's Door, and I found it very interesting because, of course, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that my my dad passed away in January 2019, and, and I've had some other deaths that have happened as well in the past few months, and I've been dealing with that. And I just think in our society, I think we need to have a more healthy outlook at death and understand it in a better way. I mean, it's one of the things that is absolutely guaranteed to happen. Every one of us is going to die. Every person is going to have to deal with this with some other people in their lives at one point or another. And I think we need to to have a healthy outlook. And uh, my guest today is a doctor who deals with people every day on the topic of death. He has written a book called At Death's Door, which became a TV series called Death's Door. I find this man very interesting. I found the book very interesting. And like I say, I do feel as though there's an element of mindfulness about this. So I hope you agree. I also hope that you enjoy this and that you get a lot out of it because I certainly did. You probably are here because you care about being focused, you care about mindfulness, you want to become more grounded. Well, I have recorded another new meditation not too long ago, and it's about awakening with focus. It's about getting started in the morning. So many of my uh, listeners emailed me and said, could you record a meditation that will just help me be alert in the morning so I don't even need caffeine? I don't even need coffee. So I've recorded this one, Awaken with Focus, about being alert. It's about feeling invigorated, fresh, and dynamic for the day. It's all about bringing out your vibrancy so you can feed those around you and be the energetic person you desire to be. You can download this free guided meditation at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash awaken with focus. Awaken with focus. Sit back, relax, and take in today's episode with Dr. Sebastian Sapavida. Mindful Tribe, this is going to be an interesting and different kind of an interview today because we're talking about the subject of death which I think, personally, I don't think we talk enough about this because it's something that we can guarantee, we know it's going to happen, and let's deal with it, let's embrace it. And I'm fortunate enough to have Dr. Sebastian Sepulveda with me today. Dr. Sepulveda, are you in mindfulness mode today? I think so. Great. I am really excited to talk to you. Dr. Sepulveda, he's an MD and he's a physician in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. He has nearly 30 years experience as a doctor and a former associate professor of medicine. He's a full-time hospitalist specializing in internal medicine and nephrology, and he works with end-of-life care patients at Lowell 
General Hospital. And he's the author of an exciting new book called At Death's Door, End-of-Life Stories from the Bedside. And I say it's exciting because I have been fortunate enough to have this book for a few weeks, and I've read it, and I think that it's wonderful what you're sharing in your book, Dr. Sapovita. But first, let's talk about mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean in your life? What does it mean to you? I think uh, what it does for me is basically send me back to base, um, allow me to reset myself in terms of work and purposes. Also reminds me of who we really are. Yes. Um, and through my book on life really is and how reality is actually very, very real, though we do not want to acknowledge it many times. And I find that people on a daily basis might lose that connection and forget about what really matters and forget about what really uh, the meaning of life is all about. I would agree with you. And, you know, death is something that a lot of times we shy away from, but we love our family. We love our friends. We love people that are in our lives. So shouldn't we have a deep understanding of what it means when the end comes close, when the end is near? Because there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of things that we need to know that some people are caught off guard on. And now one of those things is the DNR question. And in your book, you talk about DNR, DNI. And for those of you who are kind of wondering, what is that? It's do not resuscitate, do not intubate. Can we talk about that? What is it true that you run into a lot of people that don't know what this even is until someone is dying in their lives? That is correct. Coming back to mindfulness, uh, people forget that all of us will die at one point and there are no exceptions to the rule. Right. There are no exceptions. No matter who That's you are, you will eventually die. What happens in real life is that for some reason, is always a foreign subject, is always about somebody else. Uh, it's always in the movies or in the news, but when it hit us, um, where it hurts, which is um, in our personal lives, most people, um, perhaps the most accepting ones are the patients themselves, but the relatives are particularly difficult to deal with and they really struggle with the idea of actual death yes. and somebody they love. And so one of the things we got to talk about to the patients is about this concept of DNR and DNI. And it's actually pretty intricate. And the book was meant to be mostly about DNR and DNI uh, because what it means is the day our hearts basically stop and we are legally dead, what to do at that point? And people, first of all, never thought about. Second, they are influenced by television versions of cardiac arrest, death, 
and they think it could be a walk in the park and just do what you got to do. And James Bond style, you come back, you shock yourself, and you win at Casino Royale 10 minutes later. Unfortunately, all of this is fantasy. So when we talk about DNR, DNI, we go to the heart of the matter, meaning we want to know if they know anything about, if they thought about, if they have any plans. And as I said, very commonly, even patients in their 90s, um, they don't want to hear. No, no. Or their, their family doesn't want to hear, right? Commonly, the family is the one that does right. not want to hear. No, they don't want to hear about that. And so, I mean, basically, there comes a time when our body naturally just, it's time for that body to die. Isn't that true? Correct. Um, sometimes it's not that obvious. Um, right. For instance, um, some people of advanced age, 90s, get to the hospital, and for some not all that clear reason. They go to sleep and they don't wake up. Right. And um, patients that have requested to be DNR, DNI, if the heart stops and they die, they want to be let go in peace. And they have the most peaceful death somebody can think of. Yes. Um, so that's one extreme. And the other is when we have, like people I deal with just about every day, they're fighting to no avail, sometimes for a month, in places like the intensive care unit, where every resource available to men is given to them, but nothing is working out. Unfortunately, every day that goes by, your chances of surviving become smaller. Yes. And there is a reasonable point where the ICU team and the consultants like I am, talk and they said, we can't save this person. There's nothing at the end of this tunnel. Right. Absolutely nothing meaningful. And prolonging the treatment means prolonging the agony. The most reasonable and humane thing to do is let them go in peace. Well, that's our opinion. Yes. <laughs> and then comes opinion. the family and this can go on for another month. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's make sure our listeners totally understand the difference between DNR and DNI. DNR, do not resuscitate. So that means bring back to life, right? If your heart stops. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. And do not intubate is, are you going to give me life support? Isn't that correct? Well, not exactly. I'm going to try to explain nope. because believe it or not, uh, simple as it might seem to us, Mm -hmm. It can be very complicated to patients. Right. So the first part you said was absolutely correct. If your heart stops and there's no heartbeat, you are right. legally dead. Right. That's when we do CPR. Yes. We jump in and we do a lot of things. But the heart of the matter, technically speaking, is that we want to try to restart that heart or not. And if the patient said, I had a good life, too many diseases, I'm too old, let me go. We let them go. Right. He said, I want to be full call as opposed to DNR. We jump on and we press on their chest, give electric shocks, stick big needles in their hearts if needed, connect them to breathing machines. We do everything that you see in, on TV. Um, now, the DNI part is a little bit trickier. Okay. And it's, it's tricky and it's a little bit more fluid. 
So normally, what I do is I separate them very well. I make sure that the patients understand what DNR is and let it be a that. Yes. The DNI means do I want to be connected to a breathing machine? Right. Uh, and the argument behind that is my heart is still beating. I still have a pulse. I still have a blood pressure. It's just my breathing that is going down. Now, for patients with terminal pulmonary disease, like COPD, patients who have tracheostomies and they had surgery in their necks, and you can see the hole where they breathe through, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, connecting them to a machine under extreme circumstances might be the last time they get hooked up to a machine and they might not come off it. Right. Um, for the rest of the patients that are normal otherwise, it tends to be a connection to a machine to be in the ICU for a period of time, usually about a week, and they tend to get better. So it's a much softer point. Right. So being intubated is a much softer point to be DNI. It's a little bit harder to argue for it. Um, so we tell patients the following. If your heart stops, nothing we can do. If you have shortness of breath and difficulty breathing, we could connect you to a machine for a period of time and probably you will do fine. Right. Right. So, yeah, when I get old and it becomes difficult for me to swallow, it becomes difficult for me to breathe, that probably means I'm getting close to the end. But if you put me on a machine to help me breathe, then somebody, e either I get better and I can breathe on my own or else somebody's going to have to make the decision to turn off that machine at one point, correct? Correct. Now, it's a lot harder to make a decision like that when right. you are on the machine. Right, of course it is. Holiday. Of course it is. And my my dad just died this month. He just died on the fifth of January, and uh, so all of these, all of these issues are very fresh in my mind. You know, thinking about all this because it is very difficult for family. And when you work, my wife is a trauma nurse. She works in critical care and has for a long time. So she's very familiar with patients who are dealing with these challenges. So, of course, I've heard from her about this and learned from her, but I also learned a lot about this from your book because I was I was very impressed with how you not only told stories, but you really very clearly explained the medical side of the story. You know, you explained what the, the patient was thinking and what the patient was saying. And then you went ahead and explained, okay, this is what it's like from a doctor's perspective. What made you decide to write this book? Um, that's actually a very, in my opinion, interesting story. And the reason is the following. Um, I went solo in 2005. I was in another practice. Okay. And my practice itself basically tripled as I went solo. Uh -huh. uh, so I worked a lot of hours. I saw a lot of patients. And I faced myself a lot of end-of-life situations with families just to realize and learn in real life that patients and families seem to know nothing about yes. the next patient and the next patient and the next patient. So I said, somebody has got to tell the story. And somebody's got to be honest about what the doctors think, 
and what's going on behind the scenes with these patients. One of the things that I comment on in general with colleagues and nurses is how America, being the most developed country in the world and having the best medicine, well, we still have over 2.5 million deaths a year in the country because all of us eventually will die. And I think, and I tell the patients, I think it's just fair to them to let them know what I know, what I think, and if I'm worried or not. If I'm not worried, I'm gonna let them know that I'm not worried. But if I am worried, I want them to know that. And I, I want them to know if they are winning or if they are losing. And if they are losing ground and death is, becomes one of the options, I think it's only fair that they know that. Yes, I do too. I'm interested in how different cultures and different religions play into end-of-life decisions. I think it would be difficult to give an extensive answer, but I can give you a couple of examples. Yeah, please. We also film a documentary that is now available for national distribution on end-of-life. And... I put together a team of nine doctors, and one of them, three nurses, there are three patients, a priest, and a lawyer. And we tell the story of how end of life works. And the priest who has traveled over the world, um, one of the sentences he mentions in the documentary is, when people in other countries go to the hospital, they expect to die. In America, when we go to the hospital, we expect to leave. Yes. And interestingly enough, with the melting pot we have in our country, I think other, our other cultures are learning pretty quickly that in America, we gotta demand life and further treatments and prolongation of life, um, even if that means prolonging the dying process. So probably, different cultures and different countries behave in a given way in their own land. But once they come to America, I think it's very uniform, the request for further treatment and life prolongation. Right, I see. And this documentary, End of Life documentary, where can we find that? How could we watch that? Well, we just finished editing um, the last scenes um, about three weeks ago. Okay. We filmed it about a year ago. It took about 2,000 hours of editing wow. to get this corrected. Um, the reason is, very interestingly, when filming a documentary, my book became a TV series pilot. And um, the TV series pilot, we wrote it, and we know exactly what the message is. So the actors came, and they did what we asked them to do. In a documentary, you never know who is going to say what. Exactly, yes. So getting that organized and in sync with the rest of the message, it took 2,000 hours of editing. Wow. Yeah. And so we just finished it. And probably what I'm going to do in Massachusetts, since where I live, I'll take it to hospitals to present it locally. And perhaps the public stations might um, use it and present it so we can uh, show it because... What we did in the documentary is exactly this, explain, hopefully in 
detail and in a very humane and simple way, trying to convey the fact that life is finite, what DNR DNI is, what the religious aspects of it are, what the legal side of it is, and how talking about mindfulness is a, the most natural thing that we know of. Yes. Yes. So it absolutely is. And I know that my wife says that different religions and different cultures uh, have some very strong beliefs. I know that sometimes they deal with Mennonite patients who do not believe in resuscitation, do not believe in going on machines to help them live. But you must run into that a lot as well. I would say that, Isa, um, interestingly enough, when it comes to DNR, um, I think that in my own experience here, it's very universal that people are opposed to even talk about. I would say um, white Americans are the group that in my own experience found to be the most straightforward in terms of being uh, simple and to the point. Mm -hmm. And they know what they want. And talking about is rather a natural subject, and we are able to reach conclusions. Okay. Um, other cultures, I find it extremely difficult I see. Um, to do so. Uh, probably for cultural reasons, the Asian groups are a little bit more reluctant and okay. probably among the most difficult ones to deal with on the subject. And they're very nice and polite and we get to talk about, but we sure. reach no conclusions. And other groups, uh, for instance, in the Greek culture, the family don't really tell the patient, which is also a Hispanic thing, what they have. So the patient is kept away from the precious information oh. and decision making, and they make it for them. Oh, I see. Yeah, wow. You told a story in your book about a family that in their family, it seemed like almost everyone died either on their own birthday or an anniversary or the birthday of their parent. How can that happen? What is that phenomena all about? I think it's just a statistical aberrancy, um, but it's real. Uh, that's, how it, that's how it went. Um, and, and that makes makes it kind of interesting, but yes. it's not something that I've seen reproduced um, in other uh, families. But it was just amazing how those dates really scared the daylights out of them because of their history. It is amazing. But when we get to that point where we're practically ready to die, it does seem like some people will die in the presence of a certain person or some people will die when everyone leaves. Or do you find that happens, that there are sometimes patterns that seem to form? Actually, there was uh, an article, I think it was published in the uh, uh, New York Times. I believe a doctor wrote it. And it was on terminal lucidity. Yes. Um, so I corroborated that in uh, Twitter because I've seen it. For instance, uh, somebody that I knew very closely, 92 years old, comes to the hospital feeling not well. We couldn't really find any specifics in terms of heart attack, pneumonia, or anything we can pinpoint and say, this is the problem. Um, and interestingly enough, 
She said, I want to see my family. So the next day, 25 members of the family show up. Wow. And she threw a party, was the main person, talked to everybody. And the next morning, she said, I don't feel well. And within a couple of hours, I had to stop and she went in peace. Um, we have other cases in the ICU where the son is coming from some foreign land to see the mother. Uh, the patient is terminal in every way. Two, three days go by, the relative arrives and they pass a couple of hours later. Um, something about that, no science to it, can be denied. Those of us who have seen people die and have seen it, it is it's interesting. It is very interesting. And I know with my dad, on the Wednesday night, he was declining, declining, declining. And we all thought, man, this does not look good. And then the next day, he rallied. And he all of a sudden started chatting and telling stories. And I was there with him for three hours. And he told me all kinds of things from his childhood that he had never told me before. He told me all kinds of stories. He seemed so much brighter and so much better. And then he passed away a couple of days later. Does that sort of thing happen Correct. fairly often? I think it falls in the category of the terminal lucidity, where yeah. patients who haven't been chatty at all just have this moment, this day, and then it's a matter of a couple of days at the most, and they, they go. Yeah. Yeah, so that's not unusual. Well, it's just fascinating to read the many, many stories in your book. There are so many that, well, there are a lot of stories about denial where, like you, we already yeah. alluded to, that you know the patient has these specific problems, medical problems, and they do not want to hear about it. How frustrating is that for you? Um, well, I would say it's not in the sense that if I get frustrated, I can't really do my work. Right. Um, so it's one of the possibilities. Um, I've been fired multiple times. Oh, have you? Oh, yeah. Um, when I see a situation that is clearly terminal, and the, we see that the prognosis for the patient is poor, death sure. is, will be imminent in a given period of time. Right. And so, they got to know about I just think it's only fair only that somebody fair. in the medical team tell them, this is how I see it. And I think these are the possibilities. And I think you should be aware of. And as right. a result, I would like to know what your code status, are you DNR or full code? And if you don't understand that, I want to explain you what we are going to do to you to keep you alive if this happens. So the point is, we get the um, the background, and I give them the information that I believe to be true, only to be fired uh, by some member of the family, right? Because it's not what they want to hear. Right. Exactly. Um, and I just, I just think that as as a medical community, we owe to the patients the message and the information that their clinical picture contains so they can understand what their options are. We'll continue to do everything that we can possibly do within means, and our means are enormous. But 
once the, we start losing steam and the benefits no longer are there, and all you see is the downside, the side effects. Yeah. For instance, the patient with progressive cancer that keeps on moving to the next and the next layer of chemotherapy. And the reason why they do that is because the present layer of treatment did not accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. In our world, that's really bad news because that is the standard of care. So then you start digging into more research type of combinations that are less proven, less effective, more side effects, and these people put themselves through the incredible. For instance, one of the patients that I know at home with a stool incontinence, unable to walk by himself, having seizures, coughing up blood at the dinner table, give me more chemotherapy. I want to live longer. Mm. So my point is, I think as a society, medical society, we should tell the patients how really it's going to be, um, make them address what really is going on, and let them decide if they want to go to the next level. Not just say, here is a tray of options. We have some research in Bethesda, and they are looking at a new drug. I think that's, in my, in my personal opinion, not the right thing to say. Um, I know the patients are desperate, but life does come to an end. And death with dignity is a real concept. Yes, not, it is. It's a real concept. Yes, it is. There is a, a big trend toward natural medicine and natural therapy. Do you find a conflict when people come in and they go, no, no, we don't want to take drugs or we don't want to take some of the regular treatments that you would recommend. We want to do natural healing. Or do you embrace that? How, do, how does that work with you? Well, I would say that the, the answer is pretty scientific. We have treatments that do work and they do work at a given rate and we know what the results can be. Right. So if somebody comes with the option of natural remedies against a proven option, I'm going to be opposed to that. I'm going to tell them point blank that that's not a reasonable option. Now, if that's their choice, they are welcome to do so. In my book, they're welcome to do so. But I right. want them to know what we think. Um, again, I, I really think there is a communication problem between the treating community and the receiving community of patients, of treatments, in terms of what the treatments really can do for them. It's a case right now that I talked to the family and I was pretty bland because they asked me to be bland. They said, what are real options? And I told them. And they were very polite. They didn't take anything that I said, but they right. listened to. Yes. And I got to tell them what I thought. And I tell you, weeks later, many other uh, members of the medical group talking to them, they still don't want to hear. Okay. They still didn't want to hear. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess that's that's just the way life goes sometimes. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. And the first one is this. Has there been anyone who has 
influenced mindfulness in your life or who has that been to influence mindfulness for you? Um, I would say um, my wife is very realistic and grounded and has put my life in perspective. As I think that all of us tend to lose sight a bit of our north. Um, she has done a good job. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? I mean, you're in a very stressful job. Has mindfulness helped you deal with your own emotions? I think without, I couldn't do the job. I think you got to know who you are, know what you are doing, and keep in touch with reality. Um, I think those things are part of mindfulness. And if there is a chance to transfer some of that content to the patients and relatives would be, um, I think, precious. And I try to do that too. A lot of my guests talk about breathing in one way or another and different techniques. How has breathing been a part of your mindfulness practice? Uh, not at all. Not at all? Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, no. Um, for some reason, uh, I don't practice any relaxation techniques or anything like that. I just work and it works for me. Right. Okay. So that's... It's like automatic pilot. I'll take it. That's good to know. And do you recommend any books other than your own, which is called At Death's Door? And it's a terrific read about stories of end of life. But are there any other books that you would recommend that are related to mindfulness or this topic? Certainly the book that clearly made it was Being Mortal uh, by Dr. Gagande uh, because he brought in a very simple way the concept of aging and death and then mix it up with his father's story which had a personal touch and made people feel that concept and open the dialogue. Uh, unfortunately, in my case, um, I'm like the SWAT team of the police. Yes. I'm not the guy in the street directing the traffic. What I do is all heavy duty. So unfortunately, um, has been another kind of thing that people are very receptive to. Um, but I think the book opens the, um, at least the conversation, and I got to give him great credit for it. Oh, that's great. And I will put all of this information in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. I just want to make sure I have the name of that book. Did you say it's called Being Mortal? Correct. Being Mortal. And the author again? Dr. Athul Gagande. So it's A-T-H-U-L. And the last name, I think, is G-U-G-A-N-D-E. Something like that. Um, yeah. As I said, he... he he really did a good job in terms of opening the conversation at a simple level that anybody can uh, refer to. I want to ask you about meditation, and I know that I know what you said about breathing. Do you practice any form of meditation at all in your life? I uh, no, I don't. No. Um, okay. I'm always up for some reason. I don't have downtime. Right. Uh, right. I don't take vacation. Um, I don't take days off. I'm on all the time, and it works for me. 
and it works for you and you you're you thrive in what you do and That's you don't feel right. stress and anxiety from your work um i would say from the work um rather zero um things that are probably cause stress if you will um relates to rules regulations yeah and and the change in medicine more than medicine itself i can do medicine all day long doesn't bother me but when it comes to um meetings um rules um made up recommendations that really don't respect reality in in life that that is not not something that i take very well <laughs> right dr salpavita what do you do for fun in your life uh, my family. Uh, uh, I'm either a worker with my kids and wife. That's only two things that I do. And you just enjoy the time you spend with your family Having doing fun things. Having dinner with them, talking about multiple subjects. I have two wonderful kids. Uh, extremely smart. We have intelligent conversations every day. Uh, it's a pleasure just to listen many times. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I'm very appreciative of what you've put out into the world to help people deal with death, because I don't think there's enough of that. I think it's terrific that you've put together this book, which is, like I said earlier, very clear and very easy to read, and yet you've gone into a lot of detail to fill us in. If we don't have that medical background, you explain very, very clearly what this all means. So thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. And thank you for being on the show, of course. So all the best to you, Dr. Sepavita. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, Awaken with Focus a 12-minute meditation just for you, recorded by me. You can be alert, focused after waking. That's what it's all about. Feel invigorated, fresh, and dynamic. Let your vibrancy feed those around you. Download this meditation to help you get going in the morning at mindfulnessmode.com slash awakenwithfocus. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.